Today's scripture reading is selected verses from Exodus chapter 3 and 4. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me just pray for us. Uh, Father God, we come again to your word. Um, humbly, submission to it. Lord, would you teach us through it? Would we be receptive? Uh, that we would be formed and shaped into the image of your son. That we would be made like you. Um, and that you might encourage and correct and challenge. Um, would you do that graciously for us now? By your spirit, in your son's name, amen, amen. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is John, I'm one of the team here, and um, so glad you could join us as we continue in our series in Exodus. Uh, last week, uh, we heard all about uh, Moses' encounter with God at the famous burning bush moment, very famous scene, and this week, we're still there, we're, we're still at the bush, and uh, Moses uh, encounters God, but he doesn't just encounter him, he has a conversation with him. There's a bit of a back and forth that we witness today, and I'm going to make sense, hopefully, of the selective texts that were just read, which sounds like Moses was speaking to himself, but uh, no, he's speaking with God. Um, and just for a bit of context, if you remember, when, when God had appeared to Moses, he said this, he said that he had seen Israel's suffering in Egypt he had heard their cries coming up to him, and now he has come down to save them. And then he says something interesting in verse 10. He says, after all of that, he says, come, I will send you. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And now apparently this comes as a bit of a surprise to Moses. Moses wasn't expecting this. Because the conversation that ensues demonstrates an increasing level of reluctance on the part of Moses to respond to what God has called him to do. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how Moses responds to God and the call of God on his life. And I think it would be appropriate for us today uh, to reflect on how we have responded to the call of God on our lives or how we are responding to the call of God on our lives. But the thing that I want us to keep an eye on 
as we go through this text, is not just how Moses responds to God, but how God responds back to Moses. Not just on how Moses responds to God, but on how God responds back to Moses. What I want us to see is that God is patient and gracious towards Moses. Who, like many of us, when we hear God's word, right? When we read God's word, we hear what it's calling us to do. We are less than enthusiastic about it. Often we have our questions, don't we? We have our doubts and concerns. Occasionally we've got better ideas. I have better ideas. But gratefully, as we see demonstrated in this text, God is gracious towards us, and so much so that he takes into account our insecurities and our doubts and our concerns and our questions, even our unbelief and our disobedience. That's what I want us to see. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look through each of Moses' response to God and God's call on his life, and we're going to see what it might teach us about how we ought to or might respond to God. So I've got five points today because there are five responses And so here they are. Number one, who am I? Number two, who are you? Number three, they will not. Four, I am not. And five, I will not. Who am I? Who are you? They will not. I am not. I will not. So first point today, who am I? Now we're going to go back into last week's text a little bit here, but this is where we see the, the first response of Moses in verse 11 where having just been told by God that uh, God is going to send Moses to free the Israelites, he is sending him, Moses says to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And this is a legitimate question, isn't it? This is a legitimate question. Who, who is he? Given the context of the situation, what we know so far, if you cast your mind back just a couple of weeks, we saw Moses' previous attempt to liberate the Israelite. He killed the Egyptian. Do you remember that? And how did that go? Not, not particularly well. It ended up with him running from Pharaoh. Now he's in the wilderness. And so this, we might say, is an appropriate response to God's call because it's not only who am I in the abstract, right? This is who am I in context. Who am I compared to Pharaoh, the might of Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the Israelites who have rejected me? It's also who am I to be used by you, God? And so while we might think at first that this is an example of a lack of self-confidence on Moses' part, I think it's probably a good example of the appropriate response of someone who encounters God and God's call on their life. It's appropriate. What's interesting is actually in this whole scene is not Moses' response, but God's response to him. Look at verse 12. It says there, he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God answers the question, who am I? With, I will be with you. Who am I? I will be with you. What's interesting here is that God shifts the focus, doesn't he? He shifts the focus away from Moses and towards himself. In a sense, God is saying, it doesn't really matter who you are, Moses. What matters here is who I am. And I think this begins what we might call a paradigm shift in the life of Moses. In fact, I think this whole scene is a climactic event of a paradigm shift in Moses' life. 
A paradigm shift is where we have our fundamental assumptions about the world turned upside down, reoriented, where our perspective is, is turned upside down. We, we start to see things and think things differently than we did before. One of the most famous examples of this in, in history, in human history, is the Copernican Revolution. Now, for those of you who haven't been at school in a while, I'll remind you what that is. Uh, the Copernican Revolution, if you don't remember, uh, was the moment where Copernicus uh, discovered that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, but rather the earth revolves around the sun. Right? You remember that? Remember? I don't know what grade you learned that in here. You know that's true, right? I, I got that way round, right? <laughs> got the right way round. Um, now, we know that, don't we? We, we? We've established that. But at the time, this was a profound moment in history, in human history, because it was the moment where we realized we were not the center of the story. Rather, we were part of a bigger story. And this paradigm shift changed the way that we looked at the world. In fact, it changed the way that we looked at ourselves. And I think this is a really helpful analogy to understand what is happening here as Moses encounters the living God. Christ, I don't know if you know this, but this is what happens in all of us when we truly encounter God. When you truly encounter who God is, there is a shift that takes place. I think this is what God is doing for Moses. He's shifting his focus. Moses says, who am I? And God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. But there's also uh, something else I want to suggest that's happening here. Because when God says, I will be with you, he's not simply shifting the focus away from Moses. He's also redefining the answer to that question, who is Moses? Who is Moses? Let me explain what I mean. I said a couple of weeks ago that Moses is a conflicted man, right? He was born to an Israelite slave, and now he has been adopted into Egyptian royalty. And so for the last couple of weeks, he has been in conflict with this identity. We might say that Moses has identity issues. And so when Moses says, who am I? It's actually a very pressing question for him. Who is he? And in this encounter with God, that question is going to be answered in the most remarkable way. You see, God is going to answer that question, who are you, with I am with you. So that Moses' identity, in fact, we'll see Israel's identity is defined by God's presence with them. So much so that later in Exodus 33, Moses will say to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Israel and Moses will be marked by, will be identified by the presence of God, by God with them. And so what God begins to do here in, in shifting the focus away from Moses and towards himself is not to diminish who Moses is, but rather to transform who Moses is. He's going to redefine who Moses is by claiming that his identity will be his presence with him. And Christ City, this is what God has done with the church. 
for those of us here who are in Christ, those of us who are part of the church, when we asked ourselves the question, who are we? It would be right to answer, he is with us. He is with us. We are people of the presence of God. The defining feature of the church is not stained glass windows. Thank God, because we don't have any. It's not the building. We know this. It's the community. No, it's a community who have the presence of God by the power of the Spirit. That's the defining characteristic. And so when we ask ourselves the question, who are we, Christ City? We are people who have God with us. First response, who am I? Second response, who are you? It's a question that follows is a logical one, isn't it? Moses says in verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to him? What shall I say? Who are you? Now for us to understand this question, I think we need to know one thing about the ancient world, including Egypt, where Moses was raised and learnt the ways of, and it's this, that broadly speaking in the ancient world and in the ancient mind, it was broadly polytheistic. Polytheistic, that just means they believed in many gods. And so their world was inhabited by many gods who were in battle with one another, play, uh, playing different parts in the, in the cosmos. And so it's important for us to know this because when Moses asked God his name, this isn't primarily a question is, who is God? It's which of the gods are you? Which, which one are you? I, I know all of these Egyptian gods. Give me your name so I can know which one you are. And so God replies, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now I'm not going to go into this too much because Sam did a really good job unpacking this text last week. And so you can go on the old YouTubes and you can, um, you can re-watch that if you would like to, or I would commend it to you if you, if you weren't here. Um, but two things to say real quick on this. First is God reveals himself as I am who I am, which among other things is a way of him saying, I am not one of many gods. I am not one among the many gods of this world. I am the one and only true God. God here is revealing himself to us as the capital G God. God Almighty, the God who transcends all others, by whom all things are created, in whom all things are sustained, meaning that he is not contingent or dependent on anyone or anything, and therefore there is no power in heaven and on earth that is above him or in competition with him. That's what that means. I am who I am, which is going to become more and more apparent as he comes up against the false gods, the idols of Egypt. Spoiler alert, it's one-sided. So first, he is not one God among many. He is the only one and only true God. But second, this one and only true God is also the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. And that's important because it means that he is not only the God of the universe, the one and only true God, the God of heaven, but he is also the God of these people. 
He's the God of Israel. He's not only the God of all creation, he is the God of a particular covenant. And that's important for Moses, if you think about it, because it reveals two things. First, that he has power over Pharaoh and all of those false gods, but also he is deeply committed to Israel and his people. If you think about it, you need both of those things. It's very important that both of those things are true. You see, if you have a strong God who is not for us, he is unwilling to save us. Why would he even care about us? But if you have a weak God who is for us, he's unable to save us. He might lose. But if you have a strong God who is also for us, he is mighty to save. And that's good news for Moses. And that's good news for Israel and Christ City. That is good news for us. It's good news for those of us who now are in covenant with God because of Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf. That we are in a new covenant with God by way of Jesus. And that means that our God, who is powerful over every enemy, is also completely committed to us in covenant faithfulness so that he is mighty to save. It's good news. It was good news for Moses. It was good news for Israel. And Christ City is good news for us. So God reveals himself as both powerful over Pharaoh and committed to Israel. And then we read what God plans to do with it. The next few verses, if you look down at your books, um, the next few verses are what we might call the playbook of the Exodus. The playbook of the Exodus. God says what he plans to do. He says, go and speak to the elders. Tell them I met you and I have seen their afflictions. And they will listen to you, he says, but Pharaoh won't. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, stretch out my hand, which means he's going to strike Egypt. He's going to stretch out his hand and he's going to bring them out of Egypt and he's going to bring them into the promised land. And he even says, along the way, you're going to plunder Egypt. That's what I'm going to do. And and here's what we don't know yet, right? Because none of us have read forward, right? We don't know this yet, but here's a little spoiler. I'm going to give you a spoiler. What God says will happen, happens exactly as he says it will happen. What God says will happen, happens exactly as he says it will. The elders listen. Pharaoh doesn't. God stretches out his hand. He brings them up out of Egypt into the promised land. And guess what? They even plunder Egypt. Why am I saying all of this? Well, because it tells us something about this God that we've just met. It tells Moses something about the God that he has met. It tells us that I am who I am also means I will do what I say I will do. I am who I am also means I will do what I say I will do. Christ God is, is not like us. Sometimes we try and make him like us, but God is not like us. If he were, he would not be God. You know, this week I've had a busy week and I have pushed back so many meetings to next week. I made plans and I broke plans. I do this. And I'm sorry, if you're one of those people, the public apology, I'm so sorry. I've been busy. We make plans and, and we break plans. We have good intentions, don't we? But then things come up. 
They get wrecked by, by circumstances. We say we're going to do something and then we don't do it because of our weakness or incompetence or because we're liars or because we're simply just not in control of the world around us. We don't do it. It doesn't happen. But God is different from us, Christ City. God is who he is, meaning he is in total control. Meaning that no one and nothing can wreck his plans. God is who he is and therefore he will do what he says he will do. If he said it, he will do it. If he promised it, he, he will fulfill it. When God makes plans, he accomplishes those plans exactly how he says he would do it. And so to who are you? God replies, I am your God. And because of who I am as your God, when I say I will save my people, Moses, I will save my people. Third response, they will not. They will not. Chapter 4 begins, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now, I think this is the point in the text, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, where the tone changes. The, the tone of the conversation changes. It turns from being a broadly positive um, interaction between God and Moses to an increasingly negative, a kind of a spiral happens here. From Moses responding appropriately and understandably, even humbly before God, to Moses displaying real insecurity, real doubt, and even pride and disobedience. So what do I think that? Well, uh, because here we not only see Moses doubt himself, but we see the start of him doubting God. We see the start of him doubting God. And I think this because on the one hand, his concerns make sense, don't they? Like, what, why would the Israelites believe Moses? Remember the last interaction? It makes a lot of sense that so they wouldn't believe him. But on the other hand, here we have Moses saying to God, they won't listen to me. But just go back a few verses earlier to what God had just said to Moses. He says in verse 18, and they will listen to your voice. Did you see that? They will listen to your voice. They won't listen to me. They will listen to your voice. They won't listen to me. Either Moses hadn't heard God or he didn't believe God, or he had not yet understood the God who he has just met. But either way, God says they will listen, and Moses says they won't. And we start to see that doubt creeping in, don't we? But again, look at how God responds. Look at how God responds. He doesn't say, as I would probably say, as I often say to my kids, didn't I just tell you that they would listen? Do you not believe me? Did you not hear me? Do you not trust me? No, God is much more patient than I am. And he's patient with Moses here. He says, let me, let me show you why and how they're going to listen to you. Let, let me show you. And so what does he do? He gives him a, a, a collection of miraculous signs. Collection of miraculous signs that give him and are going to give him confidence before Pharaoh and confidence before the Israelites. But most importantly, they're going to give him confidence before God. They're going to give him confidence in the nature and character of God. 
That's what I think is happening here. God is demonstrating his power. We're seeing a, a, a small part of what he's going to display later on at the actual exodus. With all of these miraculous signs, but this is not only a demonstration of power, this is a demonstration of patience towards Moses. Patience towards him who had not yet come to trust in who God is, had not come to trust in God's word to him. In Christ City, this is true of how God is with us as we approach the word of God to us. And I'm so grateful that God meets us in our fears and in our doubts. He's not intimidated by them. He's not surprised by them. He meets us in our unbelief, and he patiently shows us again and again that he is trustworthy. That he is trustworthy. Fourth response, I am not. I am not. Verse 10 says, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since. You have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. It's ironic, isn't it? Because that sounds quite eloquent, doesn't it? Um, no, there are two ways in which this uh, text has been understood. The first is that we read this literally uh, as if Moses was just not a very good public speaker, and that, you know, that's fine. Uh, some people have even suggested that he actually had a speech impediment. Moses had a speech impediment, and, um, and that's why he's saying he's not eloquent or can't speak, uh, which might be true, but I actually don't think that's true, and I'll tell you why. It's because there's lots of examples in the Bible of Moses speaking fairly competently in front of people. There's lots of examples of that. So the second way that this can be interpreted uh, is that this is an example of exaggerated or false humility. Exaggerated or false humility. Now, I'm British, so I know a lot about what this is. Um, and I think this is what is happening here. In fact, I want to suggest that this type of pseudo-humility is actually a form of pride. Let me explain what I mean by that. So, Moses says... I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. How does God reply? He says, And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The author C.S. Lewis once described true humility as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, right? Not thinking less of yourself, but just thinking of yourself less. And I think that's really helpful because thinking less of ourselves, minimizing who we are, can actually be a form of arrogance. Think about what Moses is doing here. What Moses is doing here is he is pointing to himself and his apparent weaknesses. And in so doing, he's not only pointing to a deficit in himself, he's pointing to a deficit in his maker. He's pointing to a deficit in his God. If Moses had been truly humble, if he had been thinking of himself less and thinking of God more, then he would have known that God has given him everything that he has and he's also not giving him everything that he doesn't have. And he knows that. And so if God asked him to speak, do you not think that the God who made his mouth could help him to speak? In fact, this is exactly how God responds to him. In verse 12, we read, Now therefore, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Christity, when you say that God can't use you, you need to be so careful. 
You need to be so careful. We need to be careful that we don't slip into a form of pseudo-humility that is actually pride. That stands before the God who made you and says, you could not use me. If God calls you to do something, if God calls you to do something for him, then the God who made you can and will equip you to do that. Do you know that? Say that you cannot be used by God is not to doubt yourself, it's to doubt God. It's not to doubt yourself, it's to doubt God. And it's pride. And it's the sort of pride that leads to the final response today that says, I will not. I will not. Verse 13, we read this. But he said, it's Moses to God, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Please send someone else. So after all of this back and forth, Moses says in the most polite and roundabout and kind of British way, I don't want to do it. I I don't want to do it. Surely there's someone else. Surely there's another person that you can call. There's lots of bushes and lots of people. Meet with them. I just think this is another expression of that pride that parades as humility because it's pride that would say, send someone else when God has explicitly said, I'm sending you. It's pride that asks to sit out on the sidelines when God is calling you into play. It's pride that would stand before God Almighty and in pure arrogance say, no. No. I've got a better idea. There's another guy. He's good. It's important that we see this for what it is. This is flat-out disobedience. If you remember our series in Jonah, this is very similar. God calls him one way, he goes the other. It's just disobedience. And it's important that we recognize this because it's going to make sense of God's reaction to him when it says in verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God is angry. And justifiably angry. Moses thinks he knows better than God. His uncertainty and doubt have turned to pride and now finally disobedience where he essentially says no to God's call in his life. And yet even in this Christ city, even in this, even in God's anger, how does God's anger express itself? It expresses itself in patience and grace. Look at verse 14. This is how he responds to this disobedience. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. What a response. What what a gracious God. I've already spoken to Aaron. He's coming. I knew you were going to be a little bit awkward. I knew you were going to be a bit difficult. He's coming. He's coming out into the world and he's going to meet you. I'm going to be with your mouth as I said I would and I'm going to be with his mouth. In response to Moses' pride and disobedience, God does not abandon him, but yet again he provides for him. He brings him a brother. He's gracious. 
Christ says, our God is patient with us. He is gracious to us. He knows our fears and our doubts and our uncertainties and our insecurities and even our unbelief and yet aware of it all. He knows it. He knows all of your stuff. Yeah, he still calls you. He doesn't give up on you. Let's look again at our points. But now let's look not at Moses' response to God, but at God's response to Moses. Number one, who am I? He says, I will be with you. Who are you? He says, I, I, I am your God. I am the God. I am your God. They will not. He says, I will give. I am not. I will give. I will not. I will give. How gracious is our God. How patient is he with Moses. Christ City, we need a paradigm shift. We need to turn away from ourselves and towards our God that looks to God and his power and his sufficiency and his promises and his work and his goodness and his grace and his faithfulness so that we can realize when God calls us, just like Moses, it's not because we are special or essential or in any way really gifted for it outside of what he has given us. But in his divine wisdom, he wants to demonstrate his power through your weakness. So Christ City, let us turn our eyes away from ourselves and towards our gracious God. Amen.